You are listening to an Institute for Mathematical Innovation podcast, giving insight into the maths behind scientific advances and how maths can be harnessed to improve our lives and the world around us. So thank you for the gracious, uh, overdone, overlong introduction. <laughs> uh, I should begin with an apology because I only realised today that the poster says imaging. <laughs> and working in hundreds of dimensions. And that's my mistake, because I have idea, it's my mistake. Uh, but if there's anybody who feels that they don't want to hear about imagining what's energy, please <laughs> leave What I want to talk about is what I see as a, something of a paradox, that on the one hand, I and some of my colleagues are here, we work in problems and we, we are really doing numerical analysis for problems in hundreds of dimensions, hundreds thousands of dimensions, take what you like. On the other hand, I and probably you find it very difficult to think in, in, in many dimensions. And to me, this is something about, just how, so the question is, how can you actually work in this when you cannot imagine you know, what you are doing? And uh, so I hope to throw some, some light uh, on that. So I thought I'd begin in a tough way with two dimensions, and not, that's not high dimensions. But in, in two dimensions, there's no problem, so I just represent my, my square here with the x going, because I'm not able to put the axis off, but x goes that way, and y goes that way. And, uh, uh, you know, that's just a set of all number pairs with x and y between 0 and 1. And in two dimensions, is interesting. Uh, for those of you who are old enough, maybe Edward remembers this, uh, remembers this uh, book, Flatland, published by Edwin A. Abbott in 19... In 1884, Flatland, and it's about the creatures who live in a two-dimensional world. And of course, the idea is to get you to think about what dimensionality actually means. They can perceive three-dimensional things only through their intersections as they slide through the plane of their two-dimensional world. And they perceive ordinary things in a very interesting way. Uh, well, three dimensions. Three dimensions the set of number triples x, y, z between 0 and 1. That's easy. Of course, we know all about that. Four dimensions. Well, what about four dimensions? What's the four-dimensional unit Q? Uh, and I like this uh, view from Hollywood, from the movie Cube 2 Hypercube. It's a thriller. It's a, it's a, a sinister theme. See, and I quote from the synopsis, a woman waking up alone in a cube, I think, she, I think that means a a three-dimensional cube, uh, with a small black square on the centre of each side. She approaches one of the black squares, which opens when she touches it. And it opens, well, she notices a grey design on the metal of the walls and exclaims that it's a beautiful tesseract, an example of the fourth dimension. Tesseract? Well, I, to find out about Tesseract, I went to the fount of all knowledge, of course, and I looked on Wikipedia. <laughs> Wikipedia says the Tesseract is the four-dimensional analog of the cube. It is to the cube as the cube is to the square. And so there is a representation of a Tesseract. And you can see that there's a, of course, it's a, it's a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional version of this four-dimensional object. <laughs> and, uh, so it's a little uh, distorted depending on the angle, but you can see that it has, well, it has, how, how many vertices should it have? Should it have? It has uh, 16 vertices. It's a two to the four. For each vertex, there are four directions going from it, the other 
this is four perpendicular direction. They don't look, of course, they don't look orthogonal, but that's natural. We're used to that. Three-dimensional representations of two-dimensional things. Uh, you know, to me, I can see that's a tesseract. I see it has all the geometrical properties. It doesn't help me in the slightest, but perhaps it helps you. I, I don't know. I, I wanted to tell you how this finishes. It doesn't finish well. They let share So it's a sad story. Or, um, but my working point of view, of course, for all mathematicians, I suppose, I mean, the, the four-dimensional unit cube is just this set of, so it's the solid object. I'm not talking about the, the wire frame, but it's the, the solid object set of all x1, x2, x3, x4, real numbers that lie between, each line between 0 and 1. We can't draw it, but it's not hard to work with it. And in a broad sense, that's the thing that I want to talk about, that mathematics can work even when imagination fails, because we can just keep going. But I'd like to sort of demonstrate uh, this as we go on. So does anyone need more than three dimensions? Well, of course, we know that there are many ways that you can approach this. Of course, relativity needs four dimensions of space and uh, time. The string theory needs 12 dimensions. Uh, mathematics can need many more, and so I'm going to jump right in and give you a hundred-dimensional calculation, and let's see where it comes from. So, so this is a, this is a true story, except only the names have been changed. The Bank of Lost Fortunes has uh, introduced a new financial product called Bonanza, <laughs> and the payoff for a buyer of this product depends in some known way, which I confess I haven't written down, but. It depends in a known way. Everyone agrees what is the payoff, payoff, but it depends on the future IBM stock prices over the next 100 days. And so here's the, here's the payoff. I haven't written the formula. There's a formula. You understand we have a publicly available formula for the payoff. Now the problem for the bank, when the bank, well the bank wants to find the selling price, of course. How much to sell it for? So it needs to find the value of this product. And it doesn't know the future prices. And what it does is it computes the expected value of the payoff. And so behind that, there is an idea of a probability model. And you may think this is a bizarre thing to do, but this is the world we live in. All banks do this. Well, all the major banks do this. They have, they have courts who devise products and, and sell them to the government public, as I think about it. <laughs> based on some probability model for the future IBM stock prices. Often based on, well, for instance, on, on uh, geometric Brownian motion. Uh, and then it adds, of course, a big margin for safety, but that's what you expect, and that's not what I wanted to talk about. But I thought I would just work out this uh, model, just, just briefly. And so, to start, uh, uh, because I, I take a simple view of the world, these stock prices, the, the future stock prices in my model, can take only the value of either $1 or $2 or $3 or up to $10. Just 10 possible ways of doing it. And these 10 values in the future are all equally likely. That's my assumption. You may say that's ridiculous. But, well, you're the one who's investing, not me. <laughs> so you should worry. And we forget about all things like discounting the future value of money. Well, then, so I've written down what is the expected payoff from all this that the bank works with. So, so the expected payoff, you see we have to average over the 10 possible values of the future stock price S1, day one, the stock price on S2, so there's a second sum over 10 uh, elements, and, and then the, there's 
There are a hundred of these sums, each over ten elements, and uh, that ten to the hundred, that's just a normalizing factor because there are ten sums. So that's, that's the expected payoff. And of course, it's a hundred dimensional example. The first thing you ask is, could you ever actually work this out? But of course you can't work this out. I mean, that is, uh, you can't evaluate this because you would need to evaluate the payoff 10 to the 100 times. Just one followed by 100 digits. And it's uh, not, not feasible. So we have this high dimensional difficulty that comes and is, is widely recognized and maybe most beautifully captured by Richard Bellman, who coined the phrase the curse of dimensionality. That the extraordinarily rapid increase in the difficulty of problems as the number of variables goes up. And you see, this one problem is difficult because there are 100 days and in each, each day there is another variable. I've assumed that it only can take 10 discrete values. And yet nowadays you want to solve problems in hundreds or thousands of dimensions. And uh, we've actually done the calculation in more than one million dimensions, which is kind of I sort of I don't know some kind of a record could be. Now, what we what we actually do, the prices, the future stock prices are not limited to just one, two, three, or ten. They can take any value, and the most reasonable model is to say that the stock price, each stock price can take any value, any real number between zero and ten. Because that's not quite correct, because yeah, finite things of pence and so on, but it's much is a much more reasonable model. And that means now that each sum is replaced by an integral. Now, you know, I'm not going to be technical about this, but each sum is replaced by an integral. We have continuous variables, and I'm going to assume that all the values are equally likely. I know that's not correct. I mean, we should put in a probability distribution, but it doesn't change the essentials of the story. So I, I'm going to keep things simple. But you think, surely that makes things harder. Well, of course, it, the continuous case is the continuous case harder than the discrete case? Of course it is if you want the exact answer. Because there's no way of getting the exact answer, unless you have closed form, you know, formula, which is not, 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 not what happens most of the time. You usually have to do it by computational mathematics. So you cannot get the exact answer. But if you're willing to accept that the answer is close enough, like within 1%, say, you know, then, then we can proceed. And the trick, and people are doing this all the time. I mean, they're doing it in the financial world. All, I mean, just all the time. They're estimating the values of 100 dimensional integrals uh, by not looking at all the possible combinations of prices, because you obviously can't, continuously infinite, you know, in 100 dimensions. But what is, what is being done is to select a finite set in, in a clever way, a finite set of points at which you sample. And that one way of doing it, and what I'd like to talk about first, is the, is the way of doing it randomly. And that's uh, by what's called the Monte Carlo method. It's a lovely name, of course, because it suggests uh, a gambling... Uh, yeah, and uh, the it was invented by the scientist on the Manhattan Project to do previously un, unimaginable calculations. And I thought... Uh, I would do, I'm going to leave that problem for the moment and come back to it. But I'm going to do an experiment. I'm going to talk about how you can sort of see about breaking the curse of dimensionality, but again, I'm going to start with two dimensions. So I'm going to start with this problem of estimating the area of a disk 
inscribed in a square of side one. The unit square, just a disc inside there, and, and there's, there's the picture. So the, the, the straightforward random way of doing this is to throw points at the unit square uniformly randomly. Right? So all those red and blue points are, are points that have been thrown randomly. Of course, actually they're not thrown randomly because we have no way of generating random points. You know, side issue, these are pseudo-randomly generated, which means by a computer algorithm that is pretending to be random. It's doing its level best to, to fool you into thinking that they're random. Well, it's a good set of points. So they cluster here and there, but so what, what happens here is that, so in this picture, they have colored the red points, uh, I'm sorry, I've colored the points in the disc red, and the ones that aren't in the disc happen to fall outside red, and so this is one elementary way of estimating. If I throw enough points, you know, I'll get a good estimation. Do you agree with that? If I do it again, by the way, I'll thrust, I, I can't do this, but if I can I did have a MATLAB demonstration of this, which I would do live, but I discovered that doing things live um, is <laughs> too fraught and difficult, you know. So you have to make sure I do it again and I get a different looking pattern, a different uh, fraction of points. But, so what I've done here is to build up this picture. As each point is thrown randomly, so this is the number of throws, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000. I, I, I look at each, each time at the fraction of the points that so far lies in the disk. So you get more of this continuous result because I'm only adding one point at a time. You can't change the fraction, except at the beginning, you can't change the fraction very much. It happens that we get a, that's the blue line up here. You see, as I add more and more, 2,000 points up down here, by 6,000 points where the here and it's sort of settling down, you can see. So 6,000 points, the fraction of numbers, the fraction of points in the disk is 4,738, as it happens. You must understand, I do it again, I get a different result. But that's the result that I got today. And so that's, that's 0 0.790, roughly speaking. And then, of course, we can ask about what fraction of points should be in the disk. Well, of course, you're not. I mean, you've worked that out already. Yes. Everybody already has a number of it. Because you know that it's, it's, uh, it's just pi r squared, with the area of the disk with radius 1 half. So it's pi on 4, which is 0 0.785. So that was the red line up here, I'll just go back to it for a moment. The red line is the, is the, is the one that we know it is. Here, here, by the way, we're in the most unusual situation of actually knowing what the answer is. You usually do not know what is the answer when you do this. This is a toy problem, obviously. Uh, well, so it's getting close. You see, if we go on long enough, it'll get closer still. And Monte Carlo, you know, this, this way of doing things is, uh, is well understood from a probabilistic point of view. Now, let me just ask, how, does the, how do we know the computer program? You, you know, we have our intuition, there's a point inside or outside, you can see it. Right? But uh, from the point of view of coding, you just say the point lies in the disk if the distance from the center, which is an half-half, if it's less than a half. The point lies in the disk if this formula is satisfied. Otherwise, and then if it does, you color it red. If it doesn't, you color it blue. Right? So that, the formula. Now I do the same in three dimensions. So I can be quicker about it. Because I want to find the, the, the volume of the inscribed ball in the unit in the unit cube. And so again we throw a few thousand points at the at it and we get 
There are 4,000 points here, in fact, and now the picture can be a bit confused, but the red points are inside the ball, and the blue points are outside. Some of them, of course, are in front and behind the ball, so it doesn't look quite right, but that's the way it goes. And the fraction of the points inside the ball happens to be 2,149 and 4,000, which is, which is 0.537. And as it happens, we do it again, we get a different answer. It's just, you know, but it was something around the same by the time we got 4,000 points. So the true fraction, I was not with that number, 0.537, the true fraction, of course, is 4 thirds pi r cubed, we know this. Uh, so that's uh, pi on 6, which is 0.524. So we're, we're getting there. Well, I wanted, I mean, uh, this is all about an introduction to, to higher dimensionality. So I thought, well, we played the game of, again, oh, sorry, in the test. Well, the test is the same thing, except now in three, three variables instead of two. Just Pythagoras theorem, just if that, it's inside, the colored red, if we get that quantity, is less than a half. So no one here wants to move to the seven-dimensional case because we want to do high dimensions. Now I can't draw it anymore. I can't give you a picture of it. But the test is still there. See, that's just, it's easy to do, this test. And so we did the test. We have seven independent random numbers, x1, x2, x7, between 0 and 1, I say random, they uniformly, the assumption is that each one is uniformly distributed, uniformly and independently distributed between 0 and 1. We check and colour the point red, the distance, well, you know, no matter about colouring red, we haven't got a picture, but you know what I mean, we count the point in, if it's uh, distance from, uh, from the centre is less than half, so that's, a, this, it's easy to do, it's just as easy to code in any number of dimensions. And uh, here are the results after 10,000 points. The number settles down, well, the blue line is, is it sort of settling down, maybe, to well, something. Point, point, the fraction of the points inside is now a mere 372 points on 0.037. The exact volume of the ball in seven dimensions, the inscribed ball, is a tiny 0.036, so it's still working. but. I guess I wanted to ask you, were you surprised that the volume of the inscribed ball in seven dimensions is so small? The true volume of the ball in seven dimensions is so small. You see, this is, to me, is where, you know, I've worked in these things for, for, for I mean, high-dimensional problems, and yet the fact that it's so small still takes me by surprise, you know, that it's a really tiny amount. I mean, most of the space, if I can inscribe ball in... In, in seven dimensions, inscribed in a unit cube, 96% of the volume is outside, is outside the, is outside the ball. And it's sort of surprising. And I, my, my intuition is poor in high dimensions, and uh, I, you know, somehow we, we are able to do things. It's like a, a lack, but part of the, you, know, you can see part of the thing. We had no trouble writing a test to see if a point is in or not. Of course, we can also do that now. I've chosen a problem which we know again in the answer. Uh, well, so I return now briefly to the problem of the expected payoff of Balanza. And so I'm going to go back now to two dimensions. Why? Because I can draw a picture of two dimensions. Right? So, so my payoff function in two dimensions happens to be this function that's well known to the MATLAB. Uh, artifact, but it's, it's, it's the function on the, on the two-dimensional unit square. The unit square is the height above it. Is, is, that's our payoff, depending on the values of the price this way and that way. 
well, this way, that way, yeah. And uh, so, right now I'm thinking about finding the, the value of that integral. So now just two variables over the unit square, and the uh, expected volume then is the volume under that Mexican hat. And how do you find that? Well, of course, there are many ways of doing a two-dimensional problem, but I want to stick with the Monte Carlo theme for the moment. The Monte Carlo way of estimating this volume is to choose n random points in the unit square. I'm going to take 64, actually. Take 64 points in the unit square. We evaluate, but chose independent random points in the unit square. We evaluate the payoff for each pair of prices. So this is a better way of doing Monte Carlo rather than to just tackle the volume question directly. We distribute points on the square first, and then we evaluate the payoff at each of these points and we average the result. So first step, we evaluate, we find, well, say we choose 64 points on the unit square randomly. I mean, just, these are just thrown randomly, independently randomly, uh, uniformly. And then at each of those points, you, you compute the value of the payoff function, that's the height of the red stick for each point, the 64 sticks there, and the height of that stick is the value of the payoff at that point, and then you average them. Monte Carlo estimate is just the average height for the integral, so it's one on the edge on the end, payoff at xj. And the, we have a, we got an answer of those 64 points, so as it happens at 0.403, we know the true answer. Well, there's somewhere in the ballpark, we've only got 64 points, what do you expect? You can't get, there's no free lunch here. Right? Uh, so, but now, now I want to move straight away to a real problem, to a real example. This is a calculation done by my student Ben Waterhouse some years ago. But it's, uh, it's a result of a genuine Monte Carlo calculation of the, of the average of the integral, 64 dimensions, for a problem like the one I said before, pricing financial derivative. Well, I mean, this is a more realistic uh, uh, problem. I mean, in that we've talked if we have... Uh, geometric grounded motion, and the payoff. Well, this is a difficult problem, actually. It's called the digital Asian option. So, so this is a form of gambling that is even worse than most financial products. That if you are above the, the strike price at the end of the time, no, well, the average is the Asian option. If you're above the strike price, and the value is above the strike price, you get full value. If you're below it, you get nothing. That's the digital aspect, all or nothing. And uh, so, you can see we can do the calculation here. And the number of points is now 2 to the 12th, 2 to the 13th, 2 to the 14th. 2 to the 14th is about 30,000, I think, if I remember. Correct. And the answer, well, it's suppressed zero, but you see the answer, you can see with Monte Carlo, it is settling down. Do you agree? It's settling down, getting more and more, it's getting closer and closer to slowly. That's the trouble with Monte Carlo. It always works. It's very robust. But it's slow. And uh, you can see the answer is close to 0.51. We don't know what is the true answer. But, okay, so you can see that you can do is Monte Carlo. Well, in principle, we're doing the same thing in 64 dimensions as we were doing in two dimensions there. You, 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 find, you, you, you find this 2 to the 14 points randomly distributed in, in 64 dimensional unit cube, and then on each of these you find the height of the stick and you average all the results, that Monte Carlo for you. It's a beautiful idea, beautifully simple, the wonderful simple 
theory, and uh, but but we are always asking what drives us, if any of my colleagues, is how can you do better than Monte Carlo? So that's a that's a common theme. That's what we often say in our papers. What we, our, our aim is to do at least better than Monte Carlo. No, our aim is provably better than Monte Carlo, and to do better, but to prove that we can do better. So how can we do better? And the answer is, as you might have thought of this yourself in a way, it seems crazy to choose the points at random. Can't you do better than random choice? Yeah, that's, well, that's a very big subject, but yes, you can do better than random points. So what we do is we choose points x1 up to xn in our, these are points in our high-dimensional space, that's 64-dimensional space, deliberately, not randomly. And again, we use this same formula. It's just an equal weight average. This is what's called a quasi-Monte Carlo method. It's quasi-Monte Carlo because it looks like Monte Carlo. It's not pretending to be Monte Carlo. It's trying to be better than Monte Carlo by, by making a uniform distribution of points. So that's another phrase that's in the subject. Un the uniformity of distribution of points is a object. So here's one of the constructions that we often use, this kind of construction we often use. So here are 64 random points in the two dimensions. Just, well, they're not random, they're pseudo-random. That's the difference between pseudo and quasi, by the way. It's a fine distinction. That's an important distinction. Pseudo is pretending to be pretty random, pseudo-random pretending to be random. Quasi-random quasi is is not trying to be random at all, it's trying to be better than random. So here's that quasi-random distribution, if you like. One of them is what is called a lattice, a lattice of points. It's unbelievably regular. Uh, now that, by the way, doesn't make it good, but it does make it easy to analyze, which is, you know, I think why we do, do this. We do a lot of stuff with, with the, the lattices of points. Can we really do better than Monte Carlo? Well, so this is a comparison with our 64-dimensional finance problem. So these are results that my student, Francis, uh, did, did on this uh, problem with a, with a well-chosen quasi-Monte Carlo rule. And they the red line now, the red points. And to me, you know, you don't have to analyze it carefully to see. You can see at a glance that that is much doing much, much better, settling down much faster and giving you, you know, you're in the ballpark figure, you, you know, you can believe the result out here, you know, it's really down to it. It's settled down to it's constant so it, it, Of course, that's just a picture, that's just an example, but we are always trying to do better to prove that it's possible. So, how is it possible then that we're working in a 64-dimensional problem and we're trying to find a good distribution of 2 to the 14 points? Obviously, you can't sort of think about, well, I'd like to put a point here, and I'd like to put a point here. There's one at Bath, and there's one at Bristol, and, you know. So you can't do it like that in 64 dimensions. You can't think about what would look good because you can't see it. You can look at lower dimensional projections, but really not more than three dimensions. So, so you need some mathematical principle to do it, to decide how to do it. We can't draw them, we can't imagine how the points relate. And the answer has to be that you need to use the mathematical principle to do it. And uh, that's what we do. So, not to be, this is one of the, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm getting well on with what I want to say. I'm not, and this is, you know, the most mathematics I think that show that, that, that what we did have a formula for those points in a lattice. 
And the formula for those points that I said I show here again, the same ones, that they're just multiples of this, of one on 64 in the x direction and 19 on 64 in the y direction. Just multiples of that. Because so that, that takes about that, that's one on 60, that's, that's nine on, nine on, 19 on 64, and that's twice it, that's JS2, that's JS3, and then you put them back in, if they go outside, you subtract integers to bring them back in. It's a very simple sort of formula, and that, that we had to choose two integers between 1 and 63, and here we choose 1 and 19, which happens to be a good choice, as it happens, it's a good choice in some sense. So, that, that was enough of the mathematics, but if I need to do this in 64 dimensions, See, I had two integers to choose then, 1 and 19, between 1 and, 63, between 1 and 64, so 1 and 63. 64 dimensions, we need to choose these 60, we need to choose 64 integers. I don't know the integers, they're all, they're not real numbers in general, but between 1 and n minus 1. So the question is how to choose those numbers. Uh, you know, how can we do it? Again, imagination is not going to help, at least as far as I can see. You can't get to say, well, I think a good choice would be to take, the, take my age and Alex's age and <laughs> divide them by two and sit down, but they're, they're, that's not work. There's no known formula. There's no formula in more than two dimensions that's known as a good choice to point. But there is an algorithm. That's the, that's the, to me, this is itself something extraordinary. There's no formula, but you can find a good procedure for finding it doing this kind of thing. And, and uh, here's, here's the idea behind the algorithm, and only, I've only got two slides on this. For each choice of those integers, of the, of the Z64, we can, in fact, what is called, we can compute what's called the worst case error. I don't mean to define it, because that would be rather boring. But it's the maximum error for all functions in a particular function class. Now it's a relevant function class. It's the maximum error for all functions in a particular class. We work with, by the way, with a particular view of this whole thing so that we do have a nice formula for worst case error. So we can, in fact, compute it. We have a formula and we can compute it. That's the point that's relevant here. We can, I can tell you, if, if you give me a choice of the Z1 of the Z64, then we can tell you what is the worst case error. So that in the function lives in the class, we can tell you what its error at worst could be. Now, in principle, we could, excuse me, we could run through all the possible choices of Z1 up to Z64. Right? And just work out for each of those the worst case error, and then to choose the values of all those Z64 that gives it the smallest worst case error. We could choose the best. We could, in principle, go through exhaustively and choose the best. Now, that is not realistic, because it would need us to compute end of 64, n minus 1 to the power of 64 values of the worst case error. Now, you're not be here until, not, not only until next year, but beyond all lifetimes of the universe and so on, which you need to work to compute with this, because say if n is 101, then that would mean 10 to the 128 times you need to compute the worst case error, and that is not feasible. And never will be. What we actually do, and I'm going to tell you this, you know, takes us very much up to the sort of current uh, technology, is we, we start with, well, we choose Z1 as 1, it doesn't matter what you choose, or the mathematics says in the end, it doesn't matter what you choose. So we fix Z1, but then we choose the number Z2, and then Z3, and then Z4, and so on, up to Z64, one after the other, 
and, and we never go back. It's what is called a greedy algorithm. A greedy algorithm one that never goes back, just charges on. And uh, step J, halfway through, um, you're 64 dimensions and you're, you're halfway through, and you've got to choose, with, with J is 32, you've got to choose. You know all the results up to Z31, and up to 31, now you have to choose Z32. And so with, with the other thing, one's already fixed, we run through all the N minus 1 possible values of ZJ, which is the other way. This is, this is quite feasible, right? I mean, in my example, there are only 100, 100 choices to run through. You run through all of those and you make the best choice for ZJ. That's the one that gives you the smallest worst case error. You can't compute that, I can remember. That's the assumption. So there's something that's easy to do. It's easy to describe how to do it. But why on earth would you think it would work? I mean, it's actually, the more you know about this, the less, less credible does it seem that it was working. I mean, why would it work to do anything like that? And of course, it's easy. You, you know, just ignore everything. It's, it's, you just assume you've got good results so far and go on. Well, at step J, we then prove that the average of the worst case errors for all that, those choices of ZJ is small enough. So that's mathematics. Right? That mathematics comes in there to prove that the average is satisfies the desired result. Prove that the average is okay, and then you use this beautiful principle, which we have borrowed from another theory literature, that the best choice is always better than average. Okay? We run through all the choices, we take the best. You must be better than the average choice, and you can prove that the average is okay. Isn't that wonderful? I think that's absolutely marvelous. Francis Square in, in the back row in the thesis proved that then this, this in, in the appropriate setting really gives us the optimal result in the end, which is a wonderful thing to do. <coughs> so this is uh, my second last uh, slide, in fact, because uh, so I've said the things that I really wanted to say, but in our high dimensional computations, in summary, we make use of an algorithm, which is uh, one step at a time, algorithm that so is easily implemented on the computer, I mean, because it's just doing at each step, you just have to do the same things. Uh, it can be made very efficient, which is not so easy. It's very much the work of Dirk in his thesis, Dirk Woods at the back, and has been proved to work well. Uh, this is what we want to do in, in the way numerical analysis, as I interpret it, the way I like to do it, the way my colleagues like to do it, is we want to have good algorithms, we want to be doing relevant things, interesting things that they prove to work. And that way we can confidently hold it. And we've done this without, I think, without much 64-dimensional or higher-dimensional imagination. We've done without imagination. We've also done without imaging, pretty much, because imaging, <laughs> imaging is even more. Imaging is extraordinarily difficult in high dimensions. So, so no, not much imagination, even less imaging. And I want to finish by acknowledging my many high-dimensional collaborators and colleagues in this over the years. So many people have worked in this area. So two of them are are uh, here at Bath, Ivan Graham and uh, Rob Scheifel, and uh, others are here, uh, Francis Guo and, and, uh, and uh, Derek Newitz from Melbourne and there. And uh, so, but it, it, has, it continues to be a lot of fun. I don't want to give the impression that the subject is finished. I think that's very far from the case. But I did want to give you some insight into what I think is a fascinating question. How can you work 
in something which you understand, about which you understand in an intuitive sense so little. So thank you very much for your attention.